Hello and welcome to the HLED Podcast. My name is Ben Ho. I'm a three-year-old Harvard Law School and your host this season. You're joining us on episode three of our eight-part series, Cradle to Exit, where we interview lawyers from some of the leading emerging companies and venture capital law firms and learn about what practicing is like throughout the life cycle of a company. If you're new to the series, I encourage you to begin listening from episode one, as each episode is designed to build on topics and scenarios previously discussed. On today's episode, we speak to Becky DeGraw, a partner of Wilson Sonsini's Soma office on the West Coast. We learn about raising capital at a startup's pre-financing and later preferred equity financing rounds, common devices for raising capital like safes, and factors for considering who to raise capital investments from. Keep listening to hear more. Hi, Becky. Welcome to the HLEP podcast. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm really excited to have you here because for our listeners, Becky has been on multiple podcasts like This Week in Startups with Jason Calacanis, who has a great series on startup basics, and her advice has constantly come to mind as I work on my summer projects. So really excited to have you here, Becky, and I know our listeners are in for a treat. Yeah, awesome. Let's let's do it. There's some fun fun stuff we're going to talk about. Great. So maybe we can start by having you introduce yourself, tell us about what you do, the firm you work for, and you know, kind of clients you represent. Absolutely. So um, I'm a partner at Wilson Sonsini. I'm when we are in the offices. I'm based in our San Francisco Soma office, um, and have been there for about 15 years. Uh, Wilson Sonsini is uh, certainly known for representing startup clients, both in uh, predominantly in the tech and life sciences space. And really, we represent clients from the very earliest of stages, um, from I've got an idea, how do I even get started, all the way up and through you know, uh, uh, going public and representing them as public companies. So a little bit of everything along the way. My practice area uh, focuses on what we call ECVC, uh, Emerging Companies Venture Capital, for those that aren't familiar with the, the acronym there. Um, really what that just means is that you know, we represent private companies through their life cycle and the investors that invest in those companies. So, you know, my practice is split probably about 50-50, where half the time I'm representing companies, half the time I'm representing investors. Great, great. Well, did you know in law school that this was something you wanted to do? How did you find yourself to this place? I definitely did not know <laughs> when I was in law school. Um, I, when I was in law school, I thought I wanted to be an M&A attorney. Uh, I don't know exactly where I got that idea, but I was convinced. I was like, I know exactly what I want to do. I want to be an M&A attorney in New York. Um, went down uh, that path a little bit and was like, oh, wait, I don't know if I, I, don't know if I really want to do this. Um, did some securities work for investment banks for a while. I was like, oh, I don't know if I really want to do that. And then when I came out here to, and that was like where I got, got my uh, start. And then when I came out here to Wilson Sonsini, I originally thought, I was like, ooh, IPOs. Now that's cool. That's what I want to do. I'm convinced. And then I got out here and I did a couple and I was like, oh, I don't know if I really like the IPOs either. <laughs> so the, the beautiful thing is, is because of, of Wilson's platform, I got to do a lot of different things. So I got to work with startups. I got to do uh, a lot of financings, M&A, capital markets, public company representation. And through that, it wasn't really until then that I even realized like what my practice today is. And 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 it took me probably like five years to get here <laughs> of of my wow. career. Um, but it it wasn't even on my radar when when I was in law school. So I would encourage folks to be flexible, uh, be open minded, mm -hmm. and to try things. It's hard because like in in law school, you don't really get a feel for what it's like mm -hmm. until you actually do it. 
Right. So when you said not on your radar, you mean representing startups, working with venture capital, not something you thought about till practicing. Yeah, it really, it really wasn't even on my radar until I came out to, uh, uh, I, I lateraled to, to Wilson as a second year. And it was, I really thought I was going to do IPOs and public company stuff. But, it, but here you get it, you get to have a chance to do a little bit of everything. So as I started doing, it, I was like, ooh, I like this stuff a lot better. So, <laughs> and that's really where my practice is today. Like I only represent um, private companies and the investors uh, in, in those transactions, but I still work with the earliest of companies when they're basically coming in and say, I have an idea, how do I start? Act as like their outside general counsel with all sorts of random things that may come up because they don't have you know, an in-house legal team to help them with all the way up until, you know, a last event um, that they might have before a liquidity event, you know, whether that's going mm. public or, or an M&A transaction. So very early stage, very late stage and everything in between. Right. So you, you get to work with startups, but you also get to shepherd them through all the way to the M&A exit and sometimes IPOs. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's really fun. That, and that's, to be honest, that's like one of the things that drew me to the practice. Um, it's very rewarding to be part of a team where you really get to be like part of the team. You know, you may not, yeah. you may not be taking the same risk <laughs> as the, the startup folks are, um, but you get to do it from the side of the table and you get to do it with multiple clients. And, you know, when you incorporate that client and then they get their first financing and they're so excited about it, you're excited with them. Um, you really mm -hmm. do get to go on that journey with them and kind of experience the milestones as they do. That's perfect because our season's theme is about lawyering throughout the company life cycle from cradle to exit. And you've been with your clients every step of the way. That's right. That's right. And that's how, and that is how, you know, as, as an associate, like you're going to work on the same client, right? Like, you don't like, mm -hmm. oh, well, I only do the early stage stuff. And then as soon as they get to like series B or C, we'll talk about what that means. But <laughs> as they, they start mm -hmm. to mature, you don't hand them off to another team, right? You really do. You get to stay with them. And mm. if, if you happen to be, you know, like I, I want to do ECVC and I want to do M&A, you can be on the M&A transaction too, right? So you really can kind of see them through every step of the way. Oh, that's really interesting. So in a sense, you're also growing with your clients as, as you grow in your law career. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And I guess you get to do that multiple times through with different clients at different stages of your law career then as an associate. Absolutely. Like as an associate, you know, in your first year, you're going to be, you're going to be the direct point of contact for some of your clients, right? Um, for, for the ones that are really early stage, you're going to be their go-to person. They're going to start reaching out to you with all sorts of, you know, random questions. You, you may not know the answers and that's fine, right? You go and you find a mid-level senior partner, we'll teach you, but then you got to go back and teach the client, right? <laughs> you got to explain it to them in, in layman's terms, but that's how that's how you learn, right? And it really is like, like hands-on. And then there'll be other types of transactions where, you know, it's a very late stage financing, maybe the last financing uh, before an IPO. And there's a lot of people on that transaction. And, you know, you may have a different role, uh, but you get to do a little bit of all of that over the course of a day, a week, a month. Well, we're definitely going to circle back to this later, <laughs> but... Today's episode, Becky, is called Financing the Vision, which is about raising capital, of course. So what type of practice areas do these situations typically involve? So ECVC is definitely the sweet spot for it. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm a corporate attorney and have an ECVC focus, I would say. 
um, on financing transactions, it's going to be, you know, my team, the corporate team that really takes the lead and essentially plays like the quarterback position, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to be the, the, the team that's drafting and negotiating documents that's uh, running down diligence issues, that's working hand in hand with the company to figure out how we're going to move forward on things, what we're going to push back on, disclosure items, whatever it is. But there's also going to be a number of other work streams too, depending on the stage of the company and depending on the industry of the company. So we may need to pull in folks from like our licensing team or our patents team or regulatory, right? So if the the company is in fintech or insurance or healthcare, there's a whole group of folks that just focus on on that. And they're going to be needed for certain aspects of negotiating the financing documents, like the company reps that relate to those regulatory fields and the disclosures that go along with it. Um, so you kind of have this whole team, uh, you know, that's working on various uh, pieces of the transaction, but it's the corporate team that will really kind of take the lead role. Okay. So the corporate team is really driving a similar process, but depending on which industry clients in, you might pull in different regulatory specialists. Yeah. And, and as different issues come up, right? So let's say there is an outstanding litigation and may need to pull in, you know, our litigation team to talk about um, what's going on in that case, or there may be uh, a really bad uh, pre-founder split and somebody from our employment litigation team needs to get involved, or uh, there could be some equity issuance problems that may have some tax implications. So then we have to get somebody from employee benefits or tax involved. Um, the beauty about being at a big firm that caters to this is really the way that the firm was built was to have all these different specialty areas. So mm. from the corporate team, I feel great because I'm like, I got all this support behind me um, of the various different uh, practice areas to pull in. Cool. So earlier you mentioned that 50% of your clients tend to be you know, uh, emerging companies, 50% tend to be venture capital firms. What percentage breakdown of your work would you say involves these types of financings, raising capital? A lot, most. Um, if I if I had to guess on a day to day basis, probably I don't know sixty to eighty percent is wow, around, most of it is around financing. There, there's a lot. There's a lot. Like on the on the investor side, all of that, almost all of that is financing, right? Like that's that's when they're going to bring us in to take a look at things. Like they they want us they want our help in uh, structuring and negotiating the term sheet, but then actually executing on the deal. Um, so almost all of that will be financing work. And then on the company side, right, it's whenever they're raising and then even mm. preparing in between raises, right? Um, last year, <laughs> you know, it was kind of crazy. There were lots of financings and preemptive financings and um, the financing cycles got shorter and shorter. So, uh, you know, they were escalated, but financings is a huge part of what I do day in and day out. That's really interesting. So on the venture side, it's, it's, almost 100% financing and on the company side, preparing to finance and, and raise capital? Almost always. <laughs> yeah. wow. as, as a founder, you know, it, it feels like, um, I, I've had a number of founders tell me this, so like, as soon as I'm done fundraising, you know, you may have a couple of months before you start the process again, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the, the nature of it, the cycle of it, it used to be, you know, that you raise maybe every 12 to 18 months, but you have the prep time and in raising, right, of, of getting your, your pitch decks ready, of generating the interest, of getting those first conversations going from the time you start mm-hmm. that to the time you actually get the financing is 
you know, a couple of months. And then that cycle has in the last couple of years shrunk. We'll see what happens. 2022 is is certainly going to be a, a change from the past given the current economic conditions, but but it happens a lot. Wow. Well, it sounds like we're ready to talk about our scenario, really. Yeah, let's do it. So in previous episodes, we discussed what happens at the founding stages and how to protect your intellectual property, right? So let's say our founders have now incorporated their company, they've secured their IP protections, and now they're ready to raise capital to fund their vision. So maybe we can start with asking you, what are the different ways you can raise capital at this stage? Yeah. So this topic, you could literally do like three hour long sessions on. <laughs> so we'll, we'll start really high level and Absolutely. see where we go. Um, we often refer to this first stage of funding as pre-seed. Um, mm. And it usually takes the form of a non-equity structure. So not preferred stock. Um, you know, when you talk about like a series seed preferred stock financing or a series A preferred stock financing, that really refers to the company selling preferred stock um, which is an equity. The reason that we don't want to do that these very early stages is because equity financing, you tend to give up a lot, but it also is timely and costly. So you want to make sure that you're raising enough money to make it worthwhile. And these first you know, bits of uh, funding that you bring into the company probably are going to be smaller check sizes. So ideally, you, know, you do them fast, you do them quick, you do them cheap from a legal perspective so you can get the money in the door so that you can actually get to that next stage. So the, the typical structure is usually a safe, which means simple agreement for future equity um, for folks that aren't familiar with that. Um, y Combinator came out with the form of safe, I don't know, maybe like eight years ago, probably gonna mess up the date on that. Um, and they have certainly grown in popularity. Like when they first came out, I already was a little skeptical. We used to use convertible notes um, before that, but um, they have certainly grown in popularity to where they're the most common type of security used at the early stages. Um, they're very similar to convertible notes, basically both of them. All it means is that they, they are not equity today, but they will convert. The idea is that they will convert into equity in the future when you do that preferred stock financing round. And when they do that conversion, they'll convert at some sort of discount right, to, to what that future round is, because they were first money in, they took a bigger risk, so they should get a benefit from that, is the, the general concept behind it. So they get a discount later when, when there's money being raised, a discount on shares, really. Yeah, so you'll often agree when um, investors come in on these convertible securities, you'll have like a valuation cap or specified discount rate um, that you're negotiating today that will apply to you know the financing in the future. Got it. Um, and you'll you'll often have you know a, a few rounds of of funding. And really, a round just means you're taking an investment at different terms. Um, and you'll often have a couple of those before you actually get to that Series Seed preferred stock financing. Like for example, you know you may I don't know you may raise a couple hundred thousand dollars from friends and family right off the bat, right? Those are the people that are investing in you because they love you, <laughs> right? There's, there's no business there yet. They're just investing in you because they're like, okay, um, well, we'll do it. <laughs> and then, you know, maybe you get accepted into like an accelerator program. And, you know, those are usually coupled with an investment from the accelerator. 
So then maybe you get $100,000 safe or something that goes mm -hmm. along uh, with the program. And then maybe you go out and you raise a pre-seed, you know, from like true outside investors, angels, smaller VCs, et cetera. You know, maybe you sell a million or a little bit more in that. Then you have like your actual like series A or series seed um, preferred stock financing at that point. Wow. So in the pre-seed stage, you have things like safes, which, and then afterwards you, you think about series A, B, C onwards. Yeah. Yeah. So, and really, you know, the, the reason for those kind of like multiple rounds, it's, it's how do you, how do you get funding for the company if you don't have a history, if you don't have a business yet? Right. Um, right. So, you know, a lot of times you'll have serial entrepreneurs that sold their last company and before they have even thought of what their next company is going to be, they've got investors lined up, but that's not the typical case for most startups. So those first dollars in are the hardest. So you kind of are, mm. you kind of, you know, pulling it together from all these different sources until you can get enough metrics or traction to be able to attract investors to put in for that preferred stock financing. Right. So those earliest investors, they're taking the most risk, so they should get a discount on their investment in the future. Exactly. In the preferred exactly. stages. And, and ideally, okay. like your valuation should, should look like a hockey stick, right? <laughs> is, mm. is it's, it starts low, and as time goes on, the valuations you know, keep climbing. Um, so each round, you know, your valuation should go up. Each round, presumably, investors are taking less risk, and they don't get quite as, as good of a deal. Right. So if you're a founder at this stage, you're likely going to be looking at a safe or, I guess, friends and family investments. And, and really, all of that comes on, uh, whether it's fam friends and family, whether it's accelerator, pre-seed, kind of whatever the terminology associated with it, um, they're probably all going to be on a safe and maybe a convertible note. Those are less popular now, but almost all of those could be safe. But you could have, you know, a safe with a, you know, $5 million valuation cap. You could have a safe with an $8 million valuation cap, right? You can have like different valuation caps, which end up meaning essentially you have different rounds of those saves. So um, let's say I'm a founder and I'm looking at different investors. Uh, if a venture capital firm decides to, I guess, invest in me, are, are they also using a safe? They could, they very well could, um, you know, because they have gained in such popularity that it's not just for the $100,000 investments. Like when, when YC came out with the form, that's really kind of what it was aimed at is like, okay, these are really small check sizes. We don't want to spend time negotiating the form. You're going to go online, you download the form, you fill in the information in terms of the dollars and the names, but that's it. Since they've gained in popularity, we see them now on much bigger check sizes. So your traditional VCs, um, you know, will write million dollar, five million dollar, even um, check sizes on safes. Usually, when you start getting up into that, those million dollar plus checks, that's when you start thinking about right moving over to a preferred stock financing. And like I said, there, there, you give up a lot more when you do a preferred stock financing as a founder. Um, hmm. so you want to make sure that you got enough money coming in to justify it. And then also just the legal fees, right. Of, of putting that in place. Um, again, you want to make sure you have enough money coming in to justify going through that effort. Okay. So we've already began touching upon this, but what are the founders and investors typically looking for at this, you know, pre-seed investing round and, and succeeding stages? Yeah. So I think it, I think, I think it's really comes down to kind of two broad categories. 
um, mm. economics and control. So, you know, on the, from the founder perspective, you know, it's how much dilution am I going to take in this round? How much am I giving up? Right. And that, that all relates to, to the economics, like what is the valuation? How much, uh, you know, uh, funds are coming in, uh, how are your, all those convertibles that we just talked about, all those safes, how are they going to convert in connection with this round? Cause that's all dilution at that point in time as well. Uh, all those discounts that we gave, they're all coming into play now. Um, uh, what's your option pool going to look like on a going forward basis? All of those things hit the pre-money valuation. And what that mm. really boils down to is the people that are on the cap table prior to the financing, i.e. the founders, are taking the hit with respect to all of those things, converting, option pool being increased, et cetera. So that's that's a big category from the investor perspective you know, they're looking for a certain percentage um, ownership in the company, right? Like a lot of the VCs, they, they only have so much time. So if they can only get a 5% stake in the company, no, they're, they're less interested, right? They, they don't want to devote somebody to sit on the board to uh, sink a lot of resources into it. They want a substantial stake. So they may say, I need to have 20%. So like they're very focused on that number. Right. And they only want to put so many dollars in. So you've got to find like the right, uh, the right match between, you know, to, to bridge the gap between those. And then on the, the control side, you know, that relates to two different levels at the board level and at the stockholder level. So at the board level, almost always in your equity rounds, uh, your lead investor is going to want to take a board seat. So at the very earliest stages, like your Series C, your Series A, the common stock should still control the board, right? So certain actions require board approval. Certain actions require stockholder approval. Uh, once you give up control of the board, that can become an issue, right? Like at the end of the day, the board hires and fires the CEO. So I always remind founders of that, right? So as long as you maintain control of the board, you're not going anywhere. Um, but it's also not realistic to maintain control of the board over the life of the company. Um, usually like around maybe a series B, uh, we'll start seeing uh, a balanced board, we call it, where you may have like an even number of uh, common and preferred directors. Maybe you add an independent director in at that point. Um, uh, so that, that's at the board level. And then at the stockholder level, so certain actions require uh, a stockholder vote. Most actions require all stockholders to vote together. So founders are going to hold common stock. Investors will hold preferred stock. Mm. Okay, so, that there, so keep that, that distinction in mind. It's very important. There's a reason why we want to do it from a valuation perspective uh, and to keep your common stock price low um, so that when you are hiring employees, you can use your common stock as a motivation and incentive you know, uh, for cheap stock uh, to give to your employees. But when you put all of those together for the first couple of rounds of financings, the common stock will still control that vote. So what does that mean? That means like investors, what they're going to ask for is a set of rights that only the preferred stockholders get to vote on. So that's where like the, the control aspect will come in at the stockholder level because those types of rights that they ask for are typically going to re relate to future financings 
like a change of control of the company, you know, big transactions that they want to have a say in, that they wouldn't otherwise have a say in. So from the founder's perspective, they're really thinking about how much control am I willing to give up for the capital to raise at this stage and succeeding stages, really? Absolutely. And um, the other thing I always remind folks is sometimes founders will say, well, you know, this is our first round and maybe, you know, like I'll, I, I think I'm going to have more leverage next time. So we'll renegotiate then. The terms never get better <laughs> in terms mm. of the dollar amount, the economics do. The control aspects almost never get better because, you know, we use the Series C documents and when we turn them into Series A or we turn those into Series B, we literally start, start with the last round and we redline them. So you have investors coming in later at higher valuations, at bigger check sizes. They're not going to say, oh, it's okay. We can strip out some of those terms. <laughs> it, they they yeah. always say, well, I want to keep all of those and I want to add a few more. So, uh, you know, really that, that first financing that you do where we put those preferred stock financing documents in place, that really sets sets kind of the bar for, uh, you know, the future financing. So it is, it is actually really important to think about the, the rights and, and things that you're giving up at that point. Wow. So you could be really setting precedents based on what you do right now at the, at the pre-seed stage. At the pre-seed stage, less so because you're going to be selling those safes. But once you do the actual preferred stock round and put those equity documents in place, that will be those documents will be the precedent for every financing that follows. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, the decisions you make at the preferred stage onwards is what really matters. Yeah. Uh, I guess for precedence. Yeah. So earlier you mentioned kind of pre-money. Uh, can you kind of define that, what, what pre-money is and what post-money is? Yes, yes. Thank you for catching me on that. I, I know I, so I've, I've been trying to catch myself whenever I throw out lingo, but thanks. Um, so... Pre-money valuation or pre-money cap table um, really refers to what happens prior to the financing. Post-money really refers to what does it look like after the money has come in. So when we talk mm -hmm. about um, on a pre-money basis, I think I mentioned like, oh, you know, the dilution will hit you on a pre-money basis. Basically, that means before the investors come onto the cap table, that's what we look at. That's pre-money. Um, after the investors come on the cap table, that would be post money. Got it. And post money is when preferred shares get issued. Pre money is when only common shares get issued. Um, post money would be really only after preferred shares get issued. Um, if right. all you have out there is common stock, we really don't even talk about a pre money valuation. Um, it's really only it. after you start getting into the conversation of like, how much are you going to sell your preferred stock for? Like, what is the valuation at that time? Now, that pre-money, post-money valuation, it will also come up in like those safes and those convertible notes, right? Because that's basically mm. where they will set what the economics are for how that instrument will convert in connection with that equity financing. Got it. Got it. So, you know, let's circle back a little bit to precedents and decisions that have to be made. What are some of the biggest mistakes you see founders making at these stages? So one thing I always, always try to emphasize to um, founders, and sometimes, you know, you only have one offer on the table and 
you need the money and it's like, this is a good one, let's go with it. But if you are fortunate enough to be in the position where maybe you have multiple investors who are interested in multiple term sheets that are out there, like maybe it's not the best, maybe the best one is not the one that has the highest valuation and the biggest check size, right? Um, there's a lot that that can be said about the underlying investor and or the person that they're actually going to put on the board. So, you know, I, I often compare it to a marriage, but um, when you when you have somebody join your board, particularly in those early stages, although it's a lot easier to get out of a marriage, you can unilaterally say, I'm, I want out, <laughs> I want a divorce. You can't unilaterally say, I don't want you on my board anymore. Once an investor is on your board, unless they decide to give up that seat, they're on, they're going to stay on the board. Um, and that means if they came on as a series seed and it, you're now working on your series F, like they're still there unless they agree to step down. And mm. those can be difficult conversations. And, you know, if, if there's not the right chemistry, if, you know, maybe they aren't bringing all to the table that you had expected them to, right? It, it, it can be, can be difficult, you know, and some board members are amazing. Right. Like they are, they were prior operators in the industry. They can help you get from point A to point B. They can help you achieve those milestones. They've been there. They have the network. You know, maybe their check, if it's a little smaller or a little less in valuation, maybe it's worth more. Wow. So who you take the money from matters as well. I think it does. And if you have a choice, like I encourage folks to look at things beyond just the dollars. So that's actually a good jumping off point for me to ask. What factors are important in considering who to take investments from? For example, does it matter that you take, say, investments from VCs rather than a relative or, or like this VC and not that VC? So um, certainly, uh, you know, I, I personally would suggest avoid taking money from relatives. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, everybody always says, oh, we're such great friends. We're such great family members until you're not. Um and it's better that you don't um, mix business with your personal life. Like your uncle put in a lot of money and it's five years later and you haven't returned any and it's not looking good. It might be uncomfortable at the Thanksgiving table, right? So, you know, it, 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 take that. That's purely personal. That has no legal advice to it. <laughs> um, but as far as like investors, I think thinking about what they can bring to the table, right? Just besides that, that initial check, like, is this a, a fund that's so small that this is going to be the first check and they're not going to be able to do follow-ons, but they have awesome connections to later stage um, VCs that will they will be able to bring in um, and help fund the company in future rounds? Do they have industry expertise? Um, how committed are they going to be? Like, are they putting some junior person on your board, not really the partner level, not giving you know your company the attention and the resources that you want? All of those things, I think, are, are factors to, to take into account and, and their reputation, right? Like they're going to do background checks on you. Mm. If you have customers, they're going to call them. They're going to do their diligence on you. It is absolutely fine for you to ask to talk to some of their portfolio companies and would encourage you to do so to really get a sense of not just the firm, but the actual person that is going to sit on the board with you. Wow, because this is potentially a marriage, so you should really be doing your own background checks. I mean, I, I don't know if I would do a, a, a like an official, like legal background check, but you should definitely do your diligence on them. Right, right. Do your homework basically in deciding who to take investments from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Great. So maybe we can turn tables around a little bit and ask about the lawyer's role, right? We've talked about it from the founder's perspective and what he or she should be doing. What is the lawyer's role in this process look like? You know, what are what are the kind of works? What what is the kind of work they're doing, and what's their role throughout the whole process? Yeah, absolutely. So um, it, it's going to vary a lot depending on who your client is and what stage. But let's take the kind of follow the the example, the scenario that you gave of likely first time founder, first time uh, doing their their fundraising. They're probably going to require a lot of handholding. Um, as, as you walk through the process and that means not just the process itself and like, how do you get from point A to point B and what does it look like and what are all the steps, but, you know, really walking them through what does all of it mean? Because basically like this preferred stock financing, they're going to end up with, I don't know, 200, 300 pages of legal documents. And, Mm. you know, you're going to send that over and most founders are going to glaze over I'd be like, I have no idea what all of that means, right? That's not, they're not going to sit there and go through it and read it and have, let alone understand it. So I think what, you know, uh, our job is, is to point out the things and talk them through what, what they might care about, right? Um, and that doesn't mean going through every single term, right? Because not every single term really matters. And some of them are, okay, this is totally standard. You're going to get it all the time. But making sure they understand like what they're signing up for, not not because you know you're necessarily going to renegotiate it or because it's not standard, but just so they understand. Because I think that's I think that's the worst thing, right? Is like a founder kind of gets into it after the fact. Mm. It's like, well, wait, I didn't know I had to do that, or I didn't know they had those rights. I would say a founder shouldn't feel that way, right? And it's kind of our job to walk them through that process and help um, explain those types of things you know, in those really early stages too, you're providing just as much business advice as your legal advice, probably, <laughs> right? Uh, wow. You, you ha- it has to be coupled with this practicality and being able to, to explain it to them and understand the dynamics of where they're at, their negotiating power and understanding, okay, if we fight for this term just a little bit, are we almost certain to get it in the next round anyway? Like, where do you, where do you use your, mm. your, you know, gunpowder and what do you really get worked up about? And I think being able to understand the full market, having seen the movie thousands and thousands of times before, like that experience that you can bring to the table and uh, explaining like, not only what does it mean today? What is it going to mean for you? Refinancings down the road. What is it going to mean for you in an IPO or an M&A transaction? And basically looking around the corner for them and helping them think through what they're doing today and how that'll impact future events. I think that's like some of the most value add that a lawyer can bring to the table. Wow. So it sounds like being empathetic is really important because you may have seen the movie a thousand times, like you said, but the founder might be going through this for the first time. Absolutely. And there's a lot of high emotion stuff here, right? Like mm. in these, in these financings, you know, you are abs- as, as a founder, you're absolutely going to give up some level of control. And sometimes some founders are totally fine with that. They get it. Some are like, wait, this is my baby. All of a sudden I can be fired. They can take my shares. Mm. I have to get their permission to do X, Y, and Z. And then you kind of have to walk them back from that. Right. And explain, this is how it happens. You know, the, you're, you're also getting a check for $10 million and that comes with strings attached. And, but here's, 
here's how it works. And this is also why it's important to uh, understand the reputation of the investor, right? Like who holds that power on their side? Like what reputation do they have? You know, there are some investors that have better reputations of being more founder friendly than others. Mm. Um, and understanding that also is, is important. Wow. You know, earlier in this episode, you talked a lot about how you're really growing with your clients and being through the, with them through every stage of the process. And I can see why now, because at every stage, it can be really emotional and you're really holding your hand through it. It, it is. It is. And, and each, each stage is a little different as to like what the, the dynamics may be, um, right? You're, you're kind of planning for different things. You know, uh, you know, we're talking all about kind of like the first financing, but when you talk about the last financing, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, before uh, an IPO, let's say, you've got a lot of other things that you're considering, a lot of other um, uh, negotiations that are going to be at play because of what the investors are thinking, what their expectations are. So, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, well, maybe once you get past the first couple, it gets really easy. Hmm. Well, certain issues go away because it's like, okay, yeah, we're, we're fine with that. We're comfortable with that. But new ones evolve just as the company does. And a lot of times, even if, you know, this founder has been through three financings before, they've never been through a financing that's the last one before an IPO, right? So they don't even know what the, what those issues are that we need to be thinking about. So um, your your role evolves with with the client too. Wow, this is really exciting. So we're going to move on to our final segment now about advice for law students. Based on everything you already know now, what is something you wish you knew in law school? And what advice do you have for two and three L's about maximizing their time in law school? Got it. Um, first and foremost, I would just say keep an open mind. <laughs> um, I, as I, as I mentioned at the top, like I really thought I knew exactly what I wanted to do at three or four different points in my career. And I can tell you, I'm not doing any of those right now. <laughs> um, so it, it, I, I think law school prepares you a little bit better for what litigation feels like than, you know, in the, on the, the corporate world and every practice is just a little different. Um, and you know, just, just little things about the, about the practice. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. You know I mean? I may work on, I may bill to 20 plus clients in a day, whereas, you know, in an M&A or capital markets practice, you may bill to one or two. And mm-hmm. sometimes that fact alone influences like, wow, I don't like being pulled in 20, 30 different directions. And one day I really like to set and I like to focus on one thing and just dive in really deep and concentrate on that for hours. Um, you know, if that's something that you love, that may, that may kind of skew you one practice or another, but you're not going to really know that or get a sense for that until you actually experience it. So Mm. keep an open mind, be flexible. Um, You know, if you can find a place that you can try out a couple of different things before you have to make that decision, um, that's even better because then you, (laughs) you're not like kind of pigeonholing yourself too early in your career. Um, And then, you know, the other thing I would say is, is, it, it kind of more like a culture thing. Um, if you decide to go big law, right, there's lots of options. And um, you may say, well, I don't know, how do I pick between these? You know, I look at the rankings and they're all kind of doing this one year, one's one, the next year they're three, right? But they're all kind of in the top and they all seem to have mm-hmm. good clients. Um, you know, try to try to get a sense for for the people, for the culture. Like it's a demanding job, right? Like no matter where you go, uh, clients are going to be demanding. Just the the workload will at times be demanding. And it is, it's high stress, but 
you'll enjoy it better if you enjoy the people that you're working with. Um, and you know, if you, I, I always, always thought that was true, right? Of like, okay, if I can walk down the hall to another associate and just vent and be like, oh my gosh, it's going crazy today. Or, hey, let's go get a beer or a glass of wine. I need a break. Um, and feel like I can do that with the person that I'm working with. Uh, I think it makes a big difference. Great. So a lot of making sure you remain flexible and collect information because you could change your mind later. Absolutely. I think, I, I think there are very few uh, uh, folks that coming out of law school end up doing exactly what they thought they were going to do. <laughs> Great. So you already have began touching upon this, but I'd love to hear you know, if you have any other thoughts to offer. So a lot of students listening to this right now probably are going through OCI, about to go through OCIs, or maybe at the callback stage, right? What is a piece of advice you'd offer them as they go through interviews? And really, we want to know, how do you pick a firm? Oh, man, that's hard. It's so hard. And like right now in this like virtual environment, mm. I think it makes it even harder. Um, you know, I, I, I think that this isn't how I picked a, a firm, but how I did not, how I, how I chose not to go with one. Um, I, I went and I was doing the callback interviews in person. And um, I, as I'm being walked around, we're walking down the hallways and it was a very, very large firm in New York. And um, when we walk down the hallways, you know, somebody walks by and you kind of get off to one side and they're like, oh, excuse me. They didn't, they didn't like, oh, hey, John, how's it going? It was almost like walking mm. down the street. You didn't know the person. I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know. And then like, you know, they didn't, you, I got handed off to uh, like receptionist desk to find like the next person on my um, interviewer list. And I was just like, I just, nobody here knows each other. Like this doesn't mm. seem like a very collegial collaborative working environment. But I think what's really hard is when everything's so re remote and virtual, how do you get that feel? And I, that was, that was my dream job, by the way. Like it was the dream job at the dream firm. And mm. I turned it down. I was like, oh, I don't, this is not what I, what I had in mind. It's solely off from, from that office visit. Now th that's a, that's a long winded way to be like, I, I think it's hard. I think it's really hard right now, but ask questions, try to meet as many people as you can. Um, you know, when you, you know, usually you have to commit to the summer before you get a chance to meet more people. But during, during the summer, um, be proactive, right? Like mm. really think about like, where, what are the the different areas that you might want to do? If you reach out to somebody and say, Hey, I'd love to get, even if it's a virtual coffee, I'd love to have a, you know, a chat with you and people aren't really willing to do that. That should tell you something. Um, but if people are willing to do that, use that opportunity, right? Like talk to them, get a feel for it. Cause everybody you talk to, you're going to get a little bit different perspective, a little different feel from, um, and then, you know, maybe the other thing I would say is right out of law school, unless you are so certain because you have some prior experience in it, maybe not picking, you know, something, a firm that's going to pigeonhole you so much, like a boutique that only does one thing. Because if you end up there and that's all you do and that's all you have exposure to, that might put you in a difficult plot spot, you know, going forward in your career in terms of when you make a transition, you may have to take a haircut in class year. Whereas if you go to um, a place where you have a bigger platform and have a lot of uh, different experiences, uh, you know, you may be able to pick, you know, what you want to do 
before you have to, or you, you may be able to experience what you want to do before you have to make the decision. Wow. So definitely be proactive about having conversations and pay attention to office dynamics to the extent you're able to, if in person. Yeah. Yeah. I think those are all great things if you're able to do it. Right. So you mentioned something earlier that I'd love to get your take on. So you said you turned down your dream offer at your dream firm. That takes a lot of courage. And I know a lot of students going through the process are going to be worrying about things like prestige, et cetera. Can, can you talk more about that? Yeah, no, I, I can. Um, I, 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 I thought I wanted to be an M&A attorney in New York at one of the best M&A shops there. And I had just such a, a, I mean, I know nobody can see me out there, but you can probably hear me laughing. And, you know, I, I, I tend to have more of a bubbly personality, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. I like to interact with people. I like to talk with people. I like to enjoy life. And, you know, it, it's important to me. Hey, you're going to spend more time at work. I don't care what job you pick, <laughs> right? You're going to spend more time at work than you are in probably any other aspect of your life, right? You got to enjoy it. and you know, if you walk away from something and your gut tells you like, I don't know, that just didn't feel good. Stop and listen to it. Wow. So I remember 1L and how much time is spent studying and preparing for exams. You mean to say that you did all that, got the grades, got the dream offer, and yet still turned it down after a single day of interactions and a gut feeling? It did. And I thank God <laughs> that, that, it, that, <laughs> that, I, that I made that decision because I'm pretty sure I'd be like for the first five years of my career, I would have been like, in the back room and doing diligence. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's such a different experience. Um, you know, you all will have colleagues that, uh, you know, classmates that will go out and work at tons of different places and stay in touch with each other, you know, uh, so you can compare stories. And then also if, if, and when you decide you need to make a move, you can be like, Oh, how is it where you're at? Um, but everybody has such different experiences and, um, you know, it, it it's going to vary so much. And even, even within the same firm, to be honest, like you're going to have different experiences um, on the different partners that you work with, uh, different practice areas that you work in. Um, when, once you get into that summer position, try to meet and try out as many different things as you can. So it's important to collect information, but sounds like it's also important to pay attention to your gut. I think so. I think so. Um, but that's, that's generally how I live (laughs) and in general. So great. Well, tell you what, that is such a great note to end on Becky, such a great conversation we've had. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to episode three of the each love podcast. We'd like to thank our sound engineer, Joe Lim, Wilson Sincini, and of course, Becky DeGraw for taking the time to share her thoughts with us on this episode. Finally, a special shout out to Chris Murray for helping us develop a direction for this episode. Join us next time for episode four, representing venture capital with Robin Painter, a partner of Proskauer Rose, and Sarah Reed, general counsel of RA Capital Management. Episode four discusses what legal practice is like for our clients that are the investors, like VC firms and their general limited partners. Thank you and see you next time. This podcast is a production of the Harvard Law Entrepreneurship Project, an officially recognized Harvard Law School student organization. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Harvard Law School or Harvard University.